Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Daniel Cornelius Robinson was born on January 14, 1997, and grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. Daniel was born without a right hand and part of his right forearm, but that didn't stop him from pursuing his dreams, and he refused to see it as a handicap. He didn't have any problems playing video games and taught himself how to play the French horn as well as the trombone and was in the marching band. People who knew Daniel described him as a go-getter who enjoys helping others and has a passion for music and adventure. Daniel's family said they were all very close and stayed in frequent contact with each other and talked on the phone several times a day. In 2019, at the age of 21, Daniel moved to Tempe, Arizona after graduating from the College of Charleston with a degree in geology. A couple years after living in Arizona, he was hired to work as a hydrogeologist for Matrix New World to work on a project at a whale in the Buckeye Desert outside of Phoenix. On June 23, 2021, Daniel would arrive to his second job of the day at a remote drill site in Buckeye at 9 a.m. It was an abnormally cool and rainy day for the area, although the temperature would reach about 115 degrees later that day. At the site, he met his new coworker, pump technician Ken Elliott. They were there to assess and work on a deep well in the desert drill site. Ken said that when Daniel arrived, everything appeared fine. They talked briefly about the weather and the job assignment. But within minutes, Daniel's demeanor changed from pleasant to distracted, looking off into the desert and saying strange things. For example, Daniel strangely asked Ken if he wanted to return to Phoenix and rest. Finally, after about 15 minutes, Daniel got into his bluish-gray 2017 Jeep Renegade. He waved goodbye without saying where he was going or why he was leaving after just arriving minutes earlier. Daniel drove away, turning right at the T-junction, heading deeper into the desert instead of left back towards Phoenix, in an area west of Sun Valley Parkway and north of Cactus Road in Buckeye. Assuming that Daniel hadn't been feeling well and needed to leave suddenly, Ken called their employers to let them know what had happened, thinking Daniel would call them as well, letting them know he was sick. After a few hours, when no one had heard from him, Ken went back and investigated the job site. He found Daniel's jeep tracks heading further into the Sonoran Desert instead of into town. Daniel was reported missing that same day, and his family back in South Carolina was notified. Devastated, they knew something was wrong because Daniel had never disappeared before and was very close to his family. But they did note that he had been recently acting strange and unlike himself 
in the days leading up to his disappearance. They said he was a little withdrawn and would make sudden trips without telling his sister, who also lived in the Phoenix area. The search for Daniel was led by Buckeye Police Department using UTVs, cadaver dogs, searchers on foot, and drones flying overhead, along with the assistance in the air from Phoenix Firebird helicopters and Civil Air Patrol, initially covering an area of 70 square miles. Several mine shafts were also searched in the area, but no signs of Daniel were found. Detectives obtained a ping from his phone, but could not track it because it was off or out of range. After getting his call records, they learned he had not made any calls or texts after leaving the site. While Tempe police were dispatched to check Daniel's apartment on June 24th, they did not go inside. Police would not enter his apartment until July 7th, nearly two weeks after he was reported missing. Civil Air Patrol, comprised of volunteers who do air searches, were also contacted by police on July 7th. Once again, this was two weeks later. Finally, on July 19th, Daniel's Jeep was located by a rancher who happened to stumble upon it. It was found down a 20-foot ravine about four miles from the work site. The Jeep had crashed and landed on its side. It had significant damage and was mysteriously found in an area that was previously searched. Airbags were deployed during the crash, and investigators could tell that whoever was driving the vehicle had been wearing their seatbelt. But once again, there was no sign of Daniel. Inside the Jeep, investigators found Daniel's clothes, phone, wallet, keys, and a bottle of water. Also found was a t-shirt, jeans turned inside out, shorts, and an orange work vest, boots, and two mismatched black socks. One of the socks was Nike and the other was Adidas, and one of his red wing work boots was found underneath the Jeep. No blood was found in the vehicle, and nothing pointed toward foul play. Authorities stated that the Jeep had accelerated right before impact, but his father and the private investigator his father hired, named Jeff McGrath, disagreed with law enforcement's findings. Instead, they believed the car wreck scene was staged and foul play was involved. The cattle rancher, Brandon Shelton, who found the wreck site, whose cattle grazed 14,000 acres in the Buckeye area, is convinced the Jeep had only been in the ravine that leads to the Hassayampa River a short while when he came across it. He said it was noticeably clean, and his curious cows would have found it and licked it. He stated that if you were delirious and ripped off all your clothes and wandered into the desert, you wouldn't stick one of your shoes under the car. He said he theorized that someone deliberately wrecked the Jeep. Matt Graff agreed with the rancher and said he believed Daniel was upset about being rejected by a girl named Caitlin and went on an all-night video game binge. Then, when he turned up at work, he was so tired that he deliberately drove into the desert to take a nap where he wouldn't be found. He said he believed that, at that point, somebody with evil intentions had found him. McGrath found another black Nike sock three miles away in the desert. He said he could not explain it, but it is another reason he believes there is more to the case than meets the eye. The GPS data from the vehicle showed that it crashed, the airbags deployed, then it was driven another 11 miles and was involved in another crash. The first collision was four hours after Daniel went missing, and there was also some paint transfer from the vehicle. 
After the first accident, the ignition had been turned on at least 46 more times during the extra 11 miles it was driven. The broken glass plate near the Jeep also didn't match the vehicle. Yet, the vehicle was discovered only a few miles away from the job site, in a place that had already previously been searched. However, police believe that due to the rough terrain, the vehicle was missed by searchers in the air and on foot. On July 31st, the search uncovered a human skull, but it turned out not to belong to Daniel. It's still unknown who the skull belongs to. Other bones were found, but they were determined to be animal remains. According to friends and family, and those who worked with Daniel, he had begun to act differently in the weeks leading up to his disappearance, with his normal behavior becoming increasingly erratic. He had made some statements to his parents that they found odd, and one day he left his apartment and left the door wide open and stayed out of contact with his family for a long period of time. Before Daniel's disappearance, he had worked as an Instacart shopper to make some extra money. During one of his Instacart shopping orders on June 12, 2021, he had begun to message a woman named Caitlin who had placed the order. When Daniel dropped off their order, Caitlin and her friend were drunk and invited Daniel in to hang out. Caitlin and Daniel would exchange phone numbers and the two would exchange brief text messages. But strangely, within a week, he arrived at her house unannounced. She told him how uncomfortable this had made her. He also began sending her texts saying, I couldn't stop thinking about you and I love you, but the two didn't even know one another. He then showed up at her house unannounced once again. She again told him that showing up at her house unannounced was very unacceptable and said it made her feel extremely uncomfortable. She then told Daniel that she didn't see them hanging out anytime soon. The next day, he turned up at her house again. He texted her asking, Do you hate me? To which she replied, I don't hate you, but please leave me alone. He took 15 hours to respond with his final text to her saying, The world can get better, but I'll have to take all the time I can, or we can, whatever, to name it. I'll either see you again or never see you again. Caitlin said she knew it was irresponsible to invite someone in that she didn't know whether she had been intoxicated or not. For some reason, Daniel had become obsessed with Caitlin and had disappeared within 24 hours of sending her his last text. On November 9th, it was reported that a second set of human remains were discovered. Once again, they did not belong to Daniel. Daniel's father and Army vet, David Robinson, has been relentlessly searching for his son and founded the Daniel Robinson Foundation. The family believes that Daniel may have disappeared due to foul play, and the vehicle was dumped in the area it was found to throw off the search. However, they don't believe Daniel had run off on his own accord. The private investigator said at one point that he had conducted over 40 weeks of searches in the Sonoran Desert covering over 23,000 acres. While Buckeye police have argued that their search for Daniel has been extensive, his father claims the department is taking credit for results from volunteers and the private investigator he hired after police refused to continue searching. Police said in a report that Daniel's Jeep was going about 30 miles per hour at the time of the crash. They said Daniel most likely sped up before the crash, causing the Jeep to roll over. But former police officer and private investigator McGrath 
said that would be impossible. McGrath is very qualified to handle crash site investigations because he was previously a detective specializing in modeling crashes. According to McGrath, if Daniel's Jeep had truly rolled over, the top of the vehicle would have been damaged and all the glass windows would have shattered. McGrath said a large crunch on the driver's side of the Jeep suggested a collision occurred rather than a rollover. McGrath said he couldn't understand how Buckeye police missed other key factors, such as the Jeep's odometer reading 11 additional miles driven after the airbag deployment system deployed. At one point, the search focused on Tempe's homeless population, leading some to speculate that there may have been leads indicating Daniel may have taken to the streets and blended in. However, the question remains, what happened to Daniel? Did he commit suicide? Did he meet with foul play? Did he crash and wander off and die to the elements? Or is he now living life as a transient? Let me know in the comments what you think happened to Daniel. Geneva Phelps Hastings was born the first child to Shirley Phelps and was described as a sweetheart. As a teenager, Geneva lived in Poplar Bluff, Missouri with her parents and siblings. Since her parents worked a lot, she spent most of her time helping raise her brother Floyd and sister Carol. At the age of 17, Geneva surprised everyone when she announced she was pregnant. Geneva didn't have a steady boyfriend or talk much about the baby's father at the time. Before the baby was born, Geneva would move into her own apartment at 1110 Gardner Street. She was looking forward to being a mother and having helped raise her siblings, she was already up to the task. In June of 1975, Geneva would give birth to a baby boy that she named Tommy. Three weeks after Tommy was born, Geneva decided to go hang out with some of her friends at a party near Wolf Creek, Missouri, and her mother agreed to watch the baby. While at the party, Geneva was hanging out with friends and was staying sober for her drive home. At some point, she left the party and went to Burger Chef, but returned to the party afterward. The Burger Chef employee said they remembered Geneva because she said she was going home to check on her three-week-old son. Geneva ended up leaving the party at the same time as her friend Kathy Swift and Kathy's boyfriend. When both vehicles got to 67 North, Kathy's boyfriend turned off and Kathy and Geneva waved goodbye to one another. This would be the last time anyone ever saw her alive. Then about 1 a.m., Geneva's stepfather, Tom Phelps, was returning home from drinking when he came upon Geneva's blue 1971 Chevrolet Vega abandoned by the side of Tower Road, which was less than a fifth of a mile from her parents' home. The engine was running with the lights on and the driver's door open. He assumed she was having car trouble, so he stopped to help, but she was nowhere to be found. Panic soon set in and everyone began searching for Geneva. Investigators initially questioned Geneva's stepfather, but his alibi checked out. Then, five days after she was last seen, a neighbor noticed buzzards circling overhead a gravel road known as Lover's Lane off Pine Valley Road. She had been stabbed to death, likely with a small pocket knife. It was apparent that more than one person had dragged her from the car through the woods, causing her to lose her left sandal. After being dragged from her car, it looked as if she was held down while someone stabbed her. 
After ruling out her stepfather, Tom, authorities failed to look into anyone else as a suspect, losing valuable time and information. Authorities didn't look into anyone else until decades later when a new sheriff, Mark Dobbs, was voted in. But surprisingly, he theorized that she was targeted because of her child. The sheriff believes that several teens from the party were involved in the planning of her murder. Sheriff Dobbs said he assumed someone watched Geneva leave, then signaled the others. They knew she'd be traveling the gravel road to her parents' house, and they ambushed her. The father of Geneva's child married his girlfriend right after Geneva discovered she was pregnant. However, both the child's father and his wife were in Florida on a naval base when this murder occurred. Geneva had just applied for welfare, which would have involved seeking child support from him. While he has never contacted Geneva's family or his own son, many believe he or his wife may know something about Geneva's murder. There's also speculation that more than one woman killed her out of jealousy. Sheriff Dobbs believes one of Geneva's attackers suffered a knife wound during the assault. He was recently able to track down the evidence in the case, including Geneva's blood-covered clothing, gravel, nail clippings, blood-stained rocks and leaves, and a couple of other items, and sent them in for extensive testing. No results have been announced, but the evidence may be in backlog. Geneva's son, Tommy Hastings, was raised by Geneva's parents and is now a lawyer living in Texas. Since it's strongly believed that more than one person murdered Geneva, one or both of them may have more than likely spoken to those close to them at the time, and it's time that one of those people comes forward. Do you think she was murdered because she was seeking child support, or was a jealous woman or two involved in her brutal death? Unfortunately, Geneva was senselessly murdered 47 years ago, and as of November 2022, this case remains unsolved. Myra Gertrude Barton Ramey was born on July 12, 1973. At the age of 47, Myra lived in this small, rural town of B, Virginia. Over the years, Myra had bad luck in her relationships and often fell for the wrong men. In the summer of 2020, Myra fell hard and fast for a man named Larry Van Meter from Maryland. After changing her relationship status on Facebook, her loved ones became immediately concerned that she was once again falling for a bad guy. However, she quickly defended him and said he was amazing and good to her and was a gift from God. Soon after, a comment was posted on Facebook by someone claiming to be his wife, Katie Van Meter, who made a threatening comment to Myra to stay away from her husband or else. I couldn't find proof of this marriage, but a woman named Katie Marie Schaefer allegedly bonded Larry Vance Van Meter Jr. out of jail in Maryland at some point in the past. Meanwhile, Myra and Larry created a joint Facebook page titled Larry Myra Van Meter. Soon after, Myra would strangely go missing. She was last seen on September 5, 2020, at a gas station in Honaker, Virginia at about 2 a.m. After that, she and Larry visited friends Jill Harris and Randall Speedy Gibson at their house in Council, Virginia. Larry said that after leaving there, he let her out of his pickup truck 
on Indian Creek Road at a church in a rural area near Davenport, Virginia, not very far from her home. Then, according to him, she disappeared, strangely leaving her cell phone behind in his truck. It's unclear why she exited his truck, why she would leave her cell phone in his truck, what her plans were, or if the story was all a ruse. Canine and searchers scoured the area, but no signs of Myra were found or proof she had even been in the area. It appears that only two or three weeks had gone by from the time she began dating Larry, causing his alleged wife to be angry and strangely going missing. It's unclear if he even had a wife or if they were separated or what the real story is. Allegedly, Larry replaced a section of the hardwood floor in Myra's home after she went missing. Did Myra make it out of her friend's house alive? Did she overdose and it was covered up? Or did her boyfriend hide her body? Myra's adult daughters reported that their mother was bipolar and schizophrenic and abusive to them as they grew up, so they had distanced themselves from her when they could. It was so bad that one of her daughters admitted to disowning her at one point. Following her disappearance, several rumors began circulating. One rumor was that in the past, she was randomly attacked and fingers were pointed at her daughters for arranging the attack, but they adamantly deny any involvement. Also, one of her daughters doesn't even live in Virginia. Another rumor is that she was killed for being a confidential informant and those she surrounded herself with were dealers. Basically a recipe for disaster if this is true. There is little information about this case and some very murky information, but her story deserves to be told. As of November 2022, Myra has never been found and this case remains unsolved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.